fun fact. Throughout history, oysters were often seen as poor man's food. Yep, you heard me right. Oysters were seen as poor man's food back in the day. And I know it's hard to believe because they're kind of expensive now, right? But they were considered only suitable for people who didn't have no money, who were broke, okay? They were considered scraps. However, it was a black man named Thomas Downing who helped change all of that, okay? As a prominent figure in the oyster industry in the mid-19th century, Downing, who was a black man, opened a renowned oyster house in New York City that attracted people from all walks of life, including socialites, politicians, intellectuals, all of that. By serving oysters in a refined and elegant setting, Downing helped to elevate their status, making them the shit, okay? Making them so good and delicious, like how we enjoy them today. And he transformed oysters into this sought-out delicacy, right, that we enjoy today. And he transcended class barriers, and he became a symbol of culinary excellence. Welcome back to That Wasn't In My Textbook, our bi-weekly podcast that helps us uncover the things we always wish we learned from that boring, bulky textbook. I'm your host, Toya, and you're now listening to season four, episode 10 on the history of black oyster culture. Mm-mm-mm. Now, this is the first episode of our summer session series, and it's all about uncovering black oyster culture here in America. Because, you know, you can't talk about oysters without recognizing and celebrating the important role and contributions that black folks played in shaping oysters here in America today. In this episode, we're going to look at how and why black folks are so dominant in oyster culture, um, what cultural and culinary oyster traditions have been made or created by black folks. We're going to talk about some black oystermen and women we should know. And today we are also joined by a guest named Zella Palmer, who is a food historian and she has many other hyphens after her name, but we're going to talk about her being a food historian and a fellow podcaster. And she has a podcast called Culture and Food. And so she's going to put us onto game about oyster culture and how black folks became such a prominent figure and have such a big hand in it. Okay. So let's get into it. Now, this episode is super special for two reasons. One, it's the first episode to kick off our summer session series here on the podcast. And if you haven't listened to the trailer about the summer session, it's like a bonus. You definitely should. Um, You can listen to it after this. You don't have to listen to it now. But our summer sessions are like summer school or summer camp, if the word school is triggering, right? Um, And it's like the summer camp you never knew you always wanted to take. During the summer session is where we combine the joys of summertime and link it with fascinating untold stories that definitely wasn't in our textbook. And me, your historian homie, has handpicked a lineup of topics that not only entertain and educate, but perfectly align with the spirit of summertime. In this summer session, we're talking about the beachside delights with 
which is today's topic on the history of Black oyster culture. Get ready to saddle up for a wild journey through the captivating history of Black cowboys, where the heroes of the Wild West defy stereotypes and blaze new trails. And also this summer session, get ready to ride the waves of the history of surfing, bringing the beach vibes right into your headphones. And let's not forget the enchanting history of hookah, a topic that invites us to unwind and savor the flavors of summer. Well, that is just a preview of some of the topics that we're going to be touching on this summer. So welcome to our summer session where learning becomes a thrilling summer adventure. You never knew you needed. So that's number one, right? Of why this episode is super special. It's a summer series episode. It's a kickoff episode. Number two, the other reason why this episode is special is because we are joined by a guest. We haven't had one of those in a while. Um, I've been doing a lot of solo dolo episodes, but today we are joined by Zella Palmer, who I mentioned earlier, an author, a podcaster, a professor, a food historian, a curator, a filmmaker, and she's also the chair and director of the Diller University Ray Charles Program in African-American Material Culture in New Orleans, Louisiana. Today's topic is close to my heart and screams summer vibes. Oysters, right? Picture this, a sunny beach, a cool breeze, maybe a frozen drink in hand, you know, like a virgin strawberry daiquiri for me. I haven't been drinking, so I'll take the virgin strawberry daiquiri. You can get a regular one, whatever you like. And there's this taste of the raw or fresh charl grilled oyster, right? There's a half dozen or maybe a dozen, if you got money, you know what I'm saying, of oysters sitting on a silver platter that's resting on top of ice, right? With all the accoutrements, you know, like the vinegar and the hot sauce and the cocktail sauce and all the little things that come with, you know, getting oysters. That's the picture I want you to have in your head. Take it. Okay, cool. Now, I can't quite pinpoint the exact moment I fell in love with these delectable treats, but it was definitely after my college days. I was not eating oysters in college. You know, it was ramen noodles. It was frozen, defrosted chicken fingers, I'm sure. Like, I wasn't eating oysters in college. Before that, you know, I was definitely like a crab legs girl, right? Sinking my teeth into crab legs, dipping the meat into that garlic and butter sauce. Definitely was like sinking my teeth into baked clams. And if you've ever visited New York City Island, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's like kind of like a seafood island in New York. And so those memories of savoring seafood on warm summer nights, it just tastes like heaven. You know, when I think of summer, I definitely think of seafood. But oysters are my newest, I don't even know if you can say that, but oysters is my newest favorite seafood at the moment, um, next to scallops and crabs. Now, talking about them, it's making my mouth water. I don't know if you can hear that. It's kind of gross, so I'm sorry. All right, so that's just my little background on how I fell in love with oysters and why I'm so excited to talk about them. Okay, folks, grab a napkin, get your taste buds ready for this first summer session episode. And even if you don't like eating oysters, the history is very interesting and the history is very black. Now, as usual, I, your historian homie, do the history segment right here in the beginning, right? It's the first 10 minutes, 
of the episode where I give you some facts and some receipts and some people you should know um, on today's topic, which is oysters. And then after that, we'll jump into the interview with Zella, who will give us more tea and info on black oyster culture, both then and now. And she'll give us some oyster eating tips and some other yummy advice to take advantage or try these delectable treats this summer. So let's get into the history segment. As usual, we always like to start with definitions. So I think it's kind of good that we start with defining what an oyster is exactly, like kind of like the scientific oceanic, I think that's a word, <laughs> definition, right? Oysters are known by some as vacuum cleaners of the ocean. And that does not sound sexy, but keep following me. They clean the ocean's water while also providing a home for local fish and other cute little sea creatures at the same damn time. Oysters are the key members of what is known as the Baval mollusk family, which means they have shells. So the Baval mollusk family includes oysters, clams, scallops, and mussels, right? They all have shells. And oysters can be found in what is called brackish water, which is where salt water and fresh water kind of meet. Oysters are usually found chilling together on the ocean floor or along the coast in an oyster bed. Their shells are hard and protective, and it's almost like a suit of armor, right? It protects them. Inside the shell, that's the yummy part that we eat, guys, um, oysters have a soft body with a muscular foot that helps them move and cling to surfaces. Like I said earlier, some people consider oysters the vacuum of the ocean. I like to think of them as a britter filter, you know, as water flows through their bodies, they trap and eat tiny particles, helping to keep the ocean clean and healthy. These marine animals are famous for their like non-symmetrical shell shapes, which I love. Like they're like, I can't explain it. I had to draw it for this and it was really hard, but yes, I love the shell shape. They also have this fire ass ability to form pearls, which is cool, right? Pearls are dope. And um, they have sharp formations that they create along the coast, in the bay areas around the world. And they are most importantly known for their taste, right? These yummy marine ass animals have been loved by humans for their delicate, delicious taste, when we enjoy oysters, we have this unique flavor that's usually described as salty, right? And like oceanic. I think that's a word, like oceany, but not too fishy. You know what I'm saying? Oysters have been a part of human cuisine for ages and ages and ages. And, you know, we have some really cool ways of eating them. You can eat them raw, right? A simple slurp. Or you can have a fancy recipe like oyster Rockefellers or a oyster po'boy sandwich. Oh, I love those. And then my personal favorite, which I love getting when I go to New Orleans is charbroiled oysters. I think that's how you say it. And those are so damn tasty. They're kind of like fried. I don't even know how to explain it, but they're so, so good. Oysters are not only a treat for our taste buds, but they also play an important role in maintaining a healthy marine ecosystem, a healthy ocean by filtering water and providing a nice home aka oyster bed for sea creatures. These shellfish reefs were once prominent all over the globe. You could find oysters everywhere, especially in the U.S. and the New England area and what they call the Chesapeake area. Um, they were everywhere. They were 
they were bubbling over. Um, but now, unfortunately, due to climate change and just like bad fishing, right? People weren't fishing them properly and allowing them to reproduce as fast as they were being harvested, right? And so unfortunately, more than 85% of these reefs have disappeared worldwide. Damn. You know, global warming and bad fishing practices were kind of fucked in the oyster department and the all shellfish really. But anyway, that is the definition of oysters with a little bit of a fact around this current state of oysters. Now, oysters have been around for a long, 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 long time. And like I said before, they were plentiful, okay? It was like, you get an oyster, you get an oyster, you get an oyster. Over 3,000 years ago, many coastal indigenous groups harvested oysters as a source of food. Then, when the colonizers arrived here in the U.S., Manhattan was still a seafood heaven, really. It was covered in oyster beds during the 17th century. Oysters were also thriving in areas like Louisiana, but the main area that oysters and seafood thrived was in the Chesapeake Bay area, which is a part of six slash seven-ish states. Those include Virginia, Maryland, Delaware, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, New York, and D.C., It's about 11,000 miles of shoreline and seafood. Yum. (laughs) But how did Black folks come to dominate the oyster industry? Especially if we're talking about the 17th century, right? Like Black folks were enslaved. So how did they play such a big role? Well, oysters became popular and the oyster industry thrived because of Black folks. And it was due to slavery. Enslaved Africans brought their ancient water working skills from West Africa to the Americas during the transatlantic slave trade. This included oystering, crabbing, boat building, and net making. West African folks were harvesting and cultivating oysters for many, many, many centuries because oysters was an important food source for those coastal African communities. One game-changing technique brought by enslaved Africans was pole oystering, which involved using long poles to scoop up oysters, causing minimal damage to the oyster beds. This technique, along with others, was brought here by the millions of Africans who were forcibly brought to regions like the Chesapeake Bay, South Carolina, and the Gulf Coast, where oyster beds were plentiful. So you see, enslaved Africans played a critical role in the American oyster industry. They brought over their knowledge and traditional techniques, including the pole oystering that we just talked about, to cultivate and harvest oysters here in America. Their contributions made the oyster industry popping and booming and lucrative and helped shape the oyster culture here in America that we enjoy today. Not only that, but their expertise paved the way for future generations of oyster men and women, both black and white. And let's not forget that without black folks and our contributions, we probably wouldn't be able to enjoy oysters like we do today. During slavery, merchants and planters sought out enslaved folks who were formerly, you know, boatmen and fishermen in Africa for their knowledge and skills in shipping and trade. Before emancipation, black and white men often worked together on the water. And when I say together, I'm going to put that in quotes because, you know, black people were enslaved. So they probably had to follow the direction of white men, even though they were more versed in boating and crabbing and oystering. 
But after the Civil War, many newly free Black folks flocked out of the fields and into the water as a source of economic opportunity. There were limited jobs after the Civil War for Black people. So working on the water as sailors, boat builders, crew members, seafood processors, and oyster harvesters was much more appealing and lucrative than being a sharecropper. As an oysterman, you earned more money and you got the independence of being your own damn boss. For centuries, Black people played a key role in the development of seafood and ocean industries in the Chesapeake region. Enslaved individuals like Aaron of York County, Virginia, pioneered the construction of the multiple log canoes, while Frederick S. Jewett, J-E-W-E-T-T, developed the crab grading system that we still use today. We were changing the game, y'all, okay? As slavery ended, the oyster industry boomed, and the Chesapeake Bay became the main supplier of oysters in the United States, and that was around like the mid-19th century. The industry required a strong workforce, leading many Black men to seek employment in oyster-related jobs. There were so many Black men dominating the oyster industry that in York County alone, Black oystermen outnumbered white oystermen by four to one. Okay. So you see, the oyster industry became a vital source of income, independence, and employment for Black communities in the post-Civil War era. Amazing. You know, we are very resilient Black folks, okay? Now, I'm going to wrap up this history section right now, and I just want you to know three people and one place that definitely wasn't in our textbooks that we should know about Black oyster culture. It's like, if you don't get anything else out of this episode, even though I know you will, (laughs) get these four things, okay? One, like I said, and we'll continue to say throughout the episode, for hundreds of years, Black people have played a key role in the development of seafood, oystering, and just the ocean, right? We know that. The one person that you should know, I mentioned them earlier, was an enslaved man by the name of Aaron from York County, Virginia, and he created the multiple log canoes. So thank you, Aaron, and we're going to remember your name. The other key person that you should know that's like a big, big deal in the Black oyster culture, really American oyster culture, right? Because it's the same. American oyster culture would not exist without Black people. So another name you should know is Frederick S. Jewett, which I mentioned before, and he created a crab grading system that we still use today, which is categorizing different parts of the crab. And the three categories are lump. And I think we've seen, you may have seen lump crab before, right? So he created that category claw and back fin. And we still use this crab grading system today. So thank you, Frederick. And then the third thing that I want you to know, there's four, remember? But the third thing I want you to know is that there were also many black oyster towns that were created in the 19th century when oysters were booming and black people were taking over and leading the way and killing the game. One town you should know is called Sandy Ground, which is located in modern day Rossville, Staten Island. I don't even know where that is, y'all, but I felt like I should tell you. Sandy Ground is one of the oldest free Black settlements in the United States, which was entirely founded and maintained through oystering, okay? They were making oyster money, baby. 
Sandy Ground was founded by a black man named Captain John Jackson. He purchased the land in New Jersey and used his boat to transport goods and people across New Jersey and to Sandy Ground in New York. While Captain John Jackson's reasoning for landing in Sandy Ground is unknown, like we don't know why that guy wanted to be there, but he got there. Um, it still led other black oyster men from surrounding areas to move there. So people from Maryland and other stuff like that came and planted roots in Sandy Ground to escape the restrictive, unfair, racist ass oyster laws they faced, which specifically targeted black oyster men. The people of Sandy Ground, also known as Sandy Grounders, that's cute, remained in the oyster industry until the oyster industry collapsed in the early 1900s due to the typhoid outbreak, which was like a seafood outbreak and pollution concerns. So those are the three, right? We know about Aaron, we know about Frederick, and then we know about Sandy Ground, the town. And the last thing I want you to know, if you don't learn anything else from this episode, is the name Thomas Downing. He was the oyster man, y'all, the go-to oyster man. Actually, fuck that. He was known as the oyster king, I believe. Thomas Downing was a free black man born to formerly enslaved people. Growing up, he learned how to fish and dig for clams and oysters on his family land. Downey left where he grew up in Virginia in 1812, went to Philly where he met and married Rebecca West. After seven years in Philly, they both settled in NYC where they had five children and where Downing established himself and his famous oyster house. Downing knew oysters like the back of his motherfucking hand, and so he started selling oysters out of his crib. And then he ended up opening an oyster house in Manhattan in the financial district in 1825. His business was so booming, was so popping, was so packed that he was forced to expand and buy the building next door. Look, Downing was the go-to man for everything oysters in the U.S. and across the pond. He provided oysters at the 1842 ball that celebrated Charles Dickens, okay? And I'm pretty sure he probably wasn't even allowed to be there because of racism and segregation, but he catered it. Okay, Thomas. And Thomas frequently shipped oysters over to Queen Victoria, who sent him a gold watch as a thank you gift. He was the man, y'all. Downing passed away on April 10th, 1866, and his death was mentioned in the New York Times, which is probably unheard of for a black person, right? And his death was also mentioned um, in the New York City Chamber of Commerce, and it actually closed for the day to honor him because he was the shit, you know? they Everyone respected him and loved him. The thing about Thomas Downing and his work is that he really raised a bar for oysters and he kind of created the concept of fine dining because before him, oysters were just served in like these little sketchy kind of dive bars, but he really took it up a notch and he had tables and he had chandeliers and he had, you know, the sheets over the table, kind of like what we see in fine dining now. He was one of the first people to do that and he served some of the best oyster dishes. He had roasted turkey stuffed with oysters. He had creamy oyster stew. He had pan fried oysters. He had roasted duck and ham. He had scalloped oysters and oyster pie. 
I am hungry, okay? He really took oysters to another level and really changed the way that people even ate oysters and cooked them. Aside from being more upscale, Thomas Oyster Bar was also unique because he allowed women and children to come in as long as they were accompanied by their husbands or fathers. And this was unusual because the only females that were generally allowed into oyster cellars or like the little dive bars were prostitutes. But Thomas was like, nah, women and children can come here. You don't have to be a prostitute to enjoy oysters. He went from being the son of enslaved folks to the oyster king of New York in the late 1800s. So don't forget the oyster king, Thomas Downing. And he also was an abolitionist. Let me not forget that his restaurant was also a stop in the Underground Railroad. Downing allowed runaway enslaved folks to hide there while they traveled north to safety. This is crazy, y'all, because you have to understand the people who were eating at his restaurant were white, right? And so they don't even understand that their money and their wealth is helping to free, right, black people, enslaved black folks. That's crazy. I love him. Thank you, Thomas Downing. So those are the four things I want you to know. The three people, Aaron, who created the multiple log boat, Frederick, who created the crab grading system that we use today. I also wanted you to know three, which was Sandy Ground, the oldest black oyster town. And then I also wanted you to know, lastly, about Thomas Downing, because he is the motherfucking man, y'all, okay? And even the white folks knew it. All right, now we're going to talk a little more about the history and future of oysters with today's guest, Zella Palmer. Zella Palmer is a culinary historian, author, professor, filmmaker, curator, scholar, and so much more. She currently has a podcast called Culture and Flavor with Zella Palmer. Y'all should definitely check it out. She is committed to documenting and preserving the legacy of African-Americans, Creole, Indigenous, and Latinx culinary history. She has a lot, a lot of titles as the chair of the Dildard University Ray Charles program. Palmer filmed and produced the story of New Orleans Creole cooking, the Black Hand in the Pot documentary. She also created a food studies program at Dillard University, which is so dope. I think I would love to take a food studies class. And she also has a lot of publications. She has a lot of titles. She's been at Essence Fest. She has been listed as New Orleans Magazine's People to Watch. She has been a part of Black Women in Food Trailblazer Honoree. She's amazing, okay? And like I said, her Culture and Flavor podcast on Heritage Radio Network, which you can listen to everywhere. You should definitely check it out. But now let's get into the interview with this badass Zella Palmer, who was going to put us on to even more history about how black people have created and shaped American oyster culture. And she's also going to give us some tips on eating. She's going to make you hungry as well. So get a napkin and let's get into it. Could you just tell us what is a culinary historian and your journey to starting that career? Okay, so um, a culinary historian is someone who documents, archives, preserves, and it comes from a multidisciplinary approach and research to look at, you know, the threads of food throughout history. 
And, you know, that it could be looking at food and music, food and slavery, um, food and food is medicine, food is public health, food is genetically modified foods, policy, law, farming, agriculture is so much that goes into food because food is woven into our human lives. And um, how I got started, I always say I got started in my mother's kitchen. (laughs) I remember this book specifically. It's funny. I pulled it out yesterday. It was in my mother's um, cookbook library in the kitchen. It's called Spoon Bread and Strawberry Wine. And Mm. it's called Recipes and Reminiscences. But this was a game changer for me growing up um, and seeing this on in her library and they are from Wilson, North Carolina, where my mother's grandfather is from. So to see these two black women have a cookbook about recipes that my grandfather um, ate at one, my great grandfather ate at one time was just so profound to me. And then later in life, um, I was going to go to culinary school after I graduated from college, but um My mom, you know, she found this museum studies program in the University of Toronto. And, you know, I just realized, like, I really don't want to be, you know, in the kitchen and on my feet for the rest of my life. You know, no shade to any chefs, you know, because I appreciate Mm -hmm. them big time. But I knew that I wanted to write. I knew that I loved history. And I didn't really know, like, how to merge all of that together. But there was a museum studies program at University of Toronto. And so I pursued it for my master's degree. And in the internship, because we all had to do, you know, an internship and and usually at a museum. And I mean, I got some prestigious interns, you know, internships at like Royal Ontario Museum and all, you know, to look at like, you know, the the, um, you know, ancient artifacts in the in the archives. But I wanted um, something different. You know, and I spent a lot of time in the library in in Canada. You know, Canadian education has such a reading culture. So I spent a lot of time reading George Washington Carver. Um, I've spent a lot of time reading um, Slow Food Nation and just a lot of the books that were out during that time in the early 2000s. And I found Southern Food and Beverage Museum. And, you know, that's really what got my career started. And um you know, it was it was it was still early on, and I was reading Dr. Jessica Harris, Berta Mae Grosner. You know, just what is food studies? What is you know African American food ways? Um, you know, I read I read a lot during that time, just trying to figure out what I want to do, and nobody knew what I. You know, everybody thought I was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure, because I like I said, I've never heard of it. Doesn't mean doesn't exist, but I'm sure like. You know, in the beginning, people were like, what is going on? (laughs) Yeah, but I am always so intrigued. I'm like, oh, a culinary historian. (laughs) You know, I feel like there's so many paths you can take and so many things. And like you said, you know, history and food and black culture is like so tied together. You know, a lot of the things that we pass down is through food. A lot of the cultures that have come to America, like through black culture has been through food, Mm -hmm. like oysters, what we're talking about today. So, you know, before we start our interview, I always do a little brief synopsis of like oyster culture, black oyster culture, like with the audience to give them some context. Um, But could you like, how would you describe or define like black oyster culture, you know, the history of it? 
Um, well, you know, I live in New Orleans, Louisiana, and mm. there is no, you know, that I know there's a lot of other cities, you know, I know the Carolinas has a deep um, oyster culture, Maryland, Virginia, you know, but in New Orleans, we also have a really deep oyster culture. Uh, when you consider that the majority who worked in the back of the house or who were enslaved to the back of the house or who were enslaved to the levees, you know, they were the ones who were doing the majority of the cooking as well as the catching of oysters. And mm-hmm. there's so many recipes that came out of the oyster culture here in New Orleans. I mean, we have, you know, the oysters Rockefeller, we have oysters Bienville, we have oysters Burton, we have so many oysters. We have, oyster, you know, oyster gumbo. We also mm-hmm. have today, you know, char grill oysters. That's like my favorite, like raw oysters and the char grill. Like, yes. Mm. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. And we, you know, and it's, it's, um, and the, the interesting part is like if you live in New Orleans or, you know, sometimes if you walk down certain streets, some of the streets will have oysters in the landfill, right? Mm. And oysters were also used as a part of um, burial rites here in New Orleans because we have a very strong Senegambian cultural influences from the first enslaved Africans who were who came from here. And the Sered tribe was they use oysters to make burial mounds. So it's very similar when you see in African American culture and probably you all have seen in movies where you know people would put seashells on the grave or, you know, other types of material culture items on the grave. So I mean New Orleans is is known for oyster culture, but there were so many greats in history, Thomas Downing was one of them, the king of oysters mm-hmm. in New York. Uh, we have tons of street food vendors here in New Orleans that would go and sing and, you know, and they would have songs and say, oyster man, oyster man, get your oysters from the oyster man. Bring out your pitcher, bring out your can, get your fresh oysters from the oyster man. And then, you know, when we think about also just modern day, there, uh, what's his name? Jason Williams. He played Easy and Straight Out of Compton. A lot of people don't know that he was an oyster shucker here in New Orleans. Oh, yeah, that's okay. how he started. You know, so the the char grilled oyster phenomena really came out of black men. Those were the jo- those oyster shucker jobs are predominantly African American men who are doing that job in New Orleans. So of course, to make ends meet, they're going to be out in the street you know, after the club and selling char-grilled oysters, right? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. 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 No, I love that because I think that, you know, in my research, I learned about, you know, Thomas Downing, of course, and then just how he elevated oysters and kind of created the fine dining around that. Because before, like you said, it was just like an, a very casual and it's, I feel like people are trying to bring that back as well. But like, you know, he kind of also created the dining experience around oysters. And so you mentioned two things. One, you mentioned Thomas Downing, who, you know, like I said, I mentioned before, are there any other figures, important figures in the oyster history like Thomas Downing, who was the king of oysters, who also, I believe, um, correct me if I'm wrong, was like in his restaurant that he had, like, you know, on Wall Street in New York. He also was like, you know, had the was a part of the Underground Railroad, and so people stopped there to on their way to like Canada and stuff like that. So, are there any other oyster men or women um, 
black ones that we should know that definitely wasn't in our textbooks? Well, there definitely were other black folks um, that were listed. Uh, well, there was Mary Purvis in Charleston. She was a free woman of color uh, and she was selling oysters in the 1850s and 1860s. Um, wow. And she was listed as a huckster in the 1860 archives. And, you know, she supplied other things for her um, clients. But, you know, that was that was common. You know, after the Civil War, so many were working in these coasts and the Carolinas and Maryland and Virginia and, you know, New Orleans and, and outside of New Orleans and Plaquemines Parish. And, you know, they sold sold food if they they could because they were trying to survive after the civil war right mm-hmm. yeah and so you know there were plenty that were that probably went unnamed and they were just usually called like the oyster man or the oyster woman you know but it's interesting to see that it was a lot of black women in this as well there's a picture of some black women that are sitting on a mound of oysters you know, in the, I think the Smithsonian Museum, just to show that Black women were also part of the seafood industry. Um, and we didn't make that much money. Thomas Downing, you know, is a huge example. And he was able to turn things around. But it was also probably because, you know, we're coming from, when you think about New Orleans and Virginia, I mean, these were very wealthy places. And mm-hmm. elites, you know, we're dining on all kinds of different types of oyster recipes. And we know this because if you look at early cookbooks, there's tons of oyster dishes and you see them mm-hmm. listed in Virginia cookbooks, in New Orleans cookbook, in Charleston cookbooks. So this was definitely dining at its finest. But also, you know, there's pictures of black folks like the longshoremen and people who worked in seafood on the boats who were eating oysters as well. Yes. This is making me a little hungry now. I'm like, I want some oysters today. (laughs) I know another, like we talked about how, you know, Black folks use this as an economic opportunity, you know, because it was a skill that they learned when they were enslaved and or that they also initially brought here from like West Africa, right? So are there any techniques or practices that you know of that like Black folks brought from West Africa that influenced how they cultivated oysters here in the U.S.? Absolutely. I mean, you you know, when we have to remember that um, when, you know, enslaved and during the, the transatlantic slave trade, you know, mm-hmm. those that had specific skills were targeted, trafficked. And they were placed in areas where their skills would be utilized, you know. And so when you look at, like I said, like New Orleans, you know, um, the early enslaved Africans came from Senegal. And so when you understand that the Senegalese, the Wolof, the Seres, the, the other tribes were really good if they were from the coast, were really good yeah. at fishing. You know, and you still see that today. If you look on TikTok and watch, you know, Senegalese fishing, it's a skill, you know. Yeah. So they uh, obviously, you know, and then they targeted those who knew how to cattle herd and put them in inland regions. Right. And the list goes on. So, you know, of course they were, um, you know, came with these skills and knew how to, um, you know, fish and, you know, um, dry and salt fish to make it last, you know, they didn't, you know, th- th- especially if they were taken to tropical areas, this was not 
England. You know. What I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As yeah. People, skilled laborers. You know, who forced skilled laborers who knew how to survive in those climates and knew how to feed everybody. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's like, I thinking about it and thinking about you know how things tie back to like slavery and then even beyond that to, you know, the African diaspora and Africa, you know, different places in Africa. I think that's always just, it like all connects, like everything is connected in terms of the skills that we know today and how it ties back to, to where we originally came from. Absolutely. Yeah. And so seeing how oysters, the skill is ended up being a part of black economic growth, especially, you know, after slavery was abolished here in the United States. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, how we just talked about, you know, the traditions that were brought over here. And then also how people like Thomas Downing and you mentioned Mary, you know, were these chucking masters, these oyster masters um, and how they even with that skill, they created like fine dining. And then I know there were also like oyster houses and like chucking houses and even like oyster communities, right? Like I read about like Sandy Ground. So I wanted to know if you could discuss like some of the significance of these black oyster towns that like we don't hear about and these houses that were gathering places for black people, like safe spaces for them. I mean, well, when you think about Thomas Downing in New York, you know, and what he did, I mean, he was able to expand his business and he was mm-hmm. able to not only create this space for black and white folks to come and eat oysters and have some spirits, but it was also, I mean, he was also able to expand and ship his oysters to Europe. You know, he had Queen Victoria eating. His yes. That's huge. You know, mm-hmm. it, it was a stop on the Underground Railway. You know, a whole new a whole movie needs to be like made about this man, you know, definitely, you know, and, it, and there, I'm sure there were other oyster houses, you know, throughout this, you know, different parts if they were allowed, depending on where they were, you know. And, you know, you, like I said, you see some menus, some old menus sometimes that include those oysters and even, you know, just newspaper clippings of black cooks during that time. And they talk about what they made for, you know, these private lunches that they were catering. So clearly oysters was definitely part of the economic engine in the South and definitely in places like New York that where, you know, all the money flowed and Wall Street was booming. Yeah. Yeah. And I like, I didn't know about like oyster communities or like neighborhoods. And of course, you know, they definitely leave that out of our textbooks. So I found that really interesting to like learn about. Another thing that I would like to learn about you is what is your favorite type of oyster? Or like when you get an oyster, like what do you do with it? Do you, how do you season it? Or do you just like, what is your oyster of choice? My oyster of choice is of course, char grilled oysters. Um, Mm. You know, Mm -hmm. the Parmesan cheese, the butter, um, you know, the, the, the parsley. I mean, it's, it's a delicacy here. And I don't think the rest of the U S has really had a chance to have some new Orleans char grilled oysters because they're kind of, they're not new. The recipe is, new but it's, it's it's had an explosion here now you see mm-hmm. treats and i don't think a lot of people you know i've had that but i i love oysters just in general and it's interesting because my book is coming out um Ooh. at mitchell's barbecue 
And it's all about um, Mr. Mitchell, who is um, the, in the Barbecue um, Hall of Fame. And wow. he was inducted in the Barbecue Hall of Fame last year. And I'm, I'm just going to show you uh, my mom's oyster stew recipe because she remembered her grandfather's oyster stew recipe. And we talk a little bit about, you know, just him growing up in Wilson, North Carolina, and um, just the joy of her remembering having oyster stew. Because like I said, you know, the Carolinas, Virginia, Louisiana, I mean, uh, there were definitely communities because they were fishermen, you know, and mm-hmm. they were also going to have oyster roasts. They're also going to make, you know, oyster gumbo um, and, and all these other dishes that made oyster pie, oyster loaves. I mean, so much, you know. OK, I am learning so much. So because I was one of my questions was going to be, what are some examples of some traditional recipes? And so you said oyster stew, oyster gumbo. Yep. Yep. Okay. Um, obviously, the char grill oysters, which if you're listening and you have not tried it, please <laughs> yes, it's okay. go to New Orleans and just go to New Orleans for that. Yes. <laughs> you know, there's so much to see, but definitely go for that. Um, so gumbo, stew, oyster pie. Is that like a pot pie or is it like a... Pot pie, yeah. It can be yeah, okay. ham pie too. Yeah. Okay. Definitely. Oyster loaf. I mean, these are some of the early dishes. Here's recipe right here. I don't know if you can see it, but so you're showing the oyster stew recipe. Okay. Yes. Oh, wow. This looks really good. And, you know, I've been seeing that book everywhere and I didn't even make the connection. Yeah. I've been seeing, you know, and I'm like, oh, okay. So this is great. And I'll make sure I'll include, if you're listening in the show notes, I'll include a link to the book. If you can, I don't know, like when I release it, will the book be out or the pre-order? I'll send you some, I'll provide some info for y'all to um, check out the book because the cover is beautiful. Of course, you know, um, learning about a grill master in the Hall of Fame, a black one at that. That's something we definitely will want to know about. So I love that. Another thing I want to ask you, right? Let's, I feel like there, there may be some people who never had an oyster or like don't even know what it is. How would you, in your own words, describe an oyster? Well, here's the thing, like, because we, we are, in the United States, we have an abundance of and a variety of oysters, not as much as it used to be back in the day when you look at some of the archival photos and you see people like sitting on pounds and, and pounds of oysters. But each mm-hmm. region has a different flavor. So like in North Carolina, the, the Outer Banks and that area is more salty. You know, it's a salty oyster. In the Gulf mm. Coast, where we are, where I live, it's sweet, Right. And Maryland and Virginia also have their own oysters as well, right? And so each, depending on, you know, the fresh water and, and, you know, the composition to really, it really determines what the oyster tastes like. And Mm -hmm. unfortunately, due to climate change, you know, a lot of black fishermen are not just black fishermen, but, you know, seafood folks are having a really hard time, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. There was a documentary by um, Nyla Jefferson called Vanishing Pearls. And it talked about black oystermen in uh, Louisiana who are in danger of losing their livelihood, especially after the BP oil spill and Mm. Hurricane Katrina and all the things that are thrown our way. You know, yeah, yeah, I definitely can feel that. Like, you know, I'm like a pescatarian and like everything is farm raised and, you know, you just see the decline and, and, 
every like you know we didn't we didn't even have formula a year ago so it's just like everything is on a decline so i can only imagine how the seafood world is being affected by climate change and how our whole ecosystem is just changing especially in the food industry and the weather like everything yeah and then uh, you know what's happening in florida i mean you know we we have to realize that we depend on um migrant workers Mm-hmm. And so if we, you know, come up with these policies and, and all these things and and, real, and don't realize and value that, you know, that part of our agriculture system includes undocumented migrant labor. I mean, it's it's sad what's happening in Florida. You know, I'm, I'm, that, the infl- we're already dealing with inflation, but now, you know, it's going to really affect um, our, our tables and we haven't even really felt it yet, but. Florida is a hub of agriculture for us. So if we don't get, you know, people back to work, you know, no matter what their status is. And I think, you know, the, the U.S. is going to learn how, how integral migrant laborers are to us. Farm labor. Definitely. Travis yeah. said it a long time ago. Mm-hmm. I agree. It's going to be interesting. I guess my other question is, you know, how would you describe the cultural significance of oysters to the black community? Oh man, oysters are aphrodisiac, you know, mm-hmm. it has so many different beautiful dishes out of it, you know, because when you mm-hmm. think about like, it, you know, France was using escargot, okay? Mm, okay. So, you know, they had to adapt and, you know, use what we have available here. You know, and North America is so abundant. And I, I wish that, you know, we could revitalize all of the, you know, the the flora, the fauna, the food, you seafood, you know, that was once here when before colonization. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, Jesus, you know, it's and you know that when you come to New Orleans, because, you know, you could go to like you know, Antoine's or, you know, Galatoire's or Drago's or, you know, um, Mia. Drago's is my favorite. Yeah, you can have it raw. You can have it, you know, char-grilled. You can have oysters Bienville. You can have oysters Rockefeller with spinach and, you know, oysters Benedict. I mean, it just goes on and on and on and on, you know. Mm-hmm. So, and then you can have an oyster po' boy. Dress with cheese, you know, and fried oysters on a po' boy, genius. You know, it's it's a, nothing like that biting into fresh oysters with that, you know, light, crispy crunch and just. You're making me hungry. <laughs> <laughs> it is 830 in L.A. and I'm hungry now. <laughs> but this sounds amazing. So I have two more questions for you. Yeah. What can you know, listeners or myself, like individuals do, you know, to help support and preserve the celebration of Black folks and oyster culture? Are there any like initiatives or projects that we could like be a part of? Because like you mentioned before, with climate change, the oyster community is changing, you know, the abundance of seafood is going down. So is there a way that we as individuals can like support oyster culture in general, but specifically like black oyster culture, since it's so important. I mean, definitely support black owned businesses that, um, you know, that's, that serve char grilled oysters or whatever kind of oysters support, you know, see, there's one in North Carolina, his name is Ryan Bethia. He's um, one of the only 
a black fisherman, oyster uh, fisherman that I know of in North Carolina. And he's doing, he's young and he's doing great work. Um, and then, you know, looking at um, oystermen in Plaquemines Parish in Louisiana, you know, there's, I'm sure you can find them on Facebook or you can find, you know, oyster farms in Plaquemines yep. Parish and just see how you can support them and buy directly from them. Okay. Yes, definitely supporting Black-owned businesses. 365 <laughs> is always celebrated here. And I feel like, you know, looking at the cultural significance of like Black oyster oyster culture on the general like landscape of black history, right? And culinary heritage in the United States has been like really big for me because I don't think I really understood before I did research and like started reading different things, how much oysters is a part of black culture. You know, I think nowadays it's very like fine dining sometimes and it can look, I think in the dine, in the restaurant experience, it can look very, depending on where you are, obviously New Orleans is probably different, but like, you know, it can look very white. Um, so he, you know, it's really interesting to see that there are black roots, African roots, like in oyster culture. Why do you think that oyster culture is kind of left out of textbooks? Because, you know, we talk about, if you look at textbooks, they, of course, they always talk about slavery and then they talk about like, you know, the South, they talk about, you know, the great migration. And I feel like oyster culture should be a part of that, you know? Um, so why do you think it's left out of textbooks and like, since it's so significant to well, it's all, black and American culture? But it's all about who produces these textbooks, right? Right. Mm-hmm. said, I mean, it's, you know, the corporatization of education, you know, is, has been dumbed down over the years, you know? And I mean, and really, you know, food is still, is just now coming you know, to fruition and food studies and things of that nature. And people are understanding how do I teach, you know, complex topics through food? Because um, you, mm-hmm. you can teach a lot. You can teach science, math, you know, um, history, all of that. And so I don't think that they even know, you know, how deep. And, I, you know, which is one of the things, like I said, that I'm excited in this book that we have coming out because we were also able to include, there's a picture in here. We were also in, able to include archival photos. Wow. That black folks were doing this work, you know? Yes. Um, and, you know, Native Americans, indigenous folks were doing this work too. We cannot forget, you know, their contributions. I mean, this is a potato farm in North Carolina. And look at, look at the wow. Where did you get these wonderful images? The state of North Carolina archives and, you know, the library, the UNC library. Yeah. Nice. They're really beautiful. I was just wondering how, you know, people, if they are watching or listening, how they could, you know, look at these images, you know, in the book, obviously that's the first place get the book. Um, But also like, how can people do deeper dives to learn more, to see more images? I mean, well, you know, there's now more digital libraries out there, right? And so, Mm -hmm. you know, sometimes with a simple Google search, you can find some of those archival photos, you know, and it's just, we just have to go back to the old ways of like, you know, doing the research, right? Getting a library and talking to your librarian, your local librarian to see what archives they have. And a lot of times they have photo archives as well, you know? Yes. Mm-hmm. You talked about the education and like 
textbooks and the corporatization of textbooks. I don't know if I said that word right, <laughs> but, um, you know, the signature in the last question of all my interviews is, you know, if you had an opportunity to write a chapter in a textbook on black oyster culture, what would you call it and why? And maybe like, what would you include in it? I would definitely, um, it would be called The King of Oysters, um, mm. which would be dedicated to Thomas Downing. And I would also include a lot of archival photos because the picture speaks a thousand words. And to show, you know, like I said, that, um, and I'll send you the article so people can read it. But there's um, a, a picture of black women sitting on a mound of oysters after the Civil War. And they were, you know, selling oysters. And we have to remember that, you know, it was once OK for black folks to be street food vendors before all the policy and, you know, and licenses and all permits. permits. Yeah, because a lot of these enslavers, wealthy enslavers sent their um, and, you know, enslaved people to sell in the markets because they also got a cut of a majority of it. And they exactly. probably take all of it if they wanted to, you know, being honest. So, um, yeah. Okay. Yes. I love that. And I hope someone does tell the story of Thomas Downing. I think a film, a book would be, anything would be amazing because reading his story and telling all the story, I feel like doesn't really do you justice. Yeah. does him justice, you know? Yeah. And that, that was, you know, the, he, the, his family, I think was able to save some of his, you know, artifacts and which was super cool because a lot of times black owned businesses, unfortunately, they usually die with the matriarch or the patriarch of the family. And then you don't yeah. know what happens to all of those photos, all of the memorabilia that was inside of those restaurants. So we have to actively do something to make sure that when those businesses close, that they're donated to a library or museum because otherwise they'll just go in boxes in somebody's storage. Yeah. I think that's a really important part of like, archiving your family history, archiving black owned businesses, especially I feel like nowadays you see a lot of black owned businesses with inflation and just different policies, um, especially out here in LA, a lot of black owned businesses are struggling because of like, you know, the landowner wants to now make it an office building and like all these things. So I do think, you know, um, amongst being devastated that a lot of them are closing is trying to at least preserve the history that they mm -hmm. they are making or, and leave behind. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, thank you so much for joining me um, on this episode. I can't wait for it to be released. I will make sure to include links to the books and all the things that we talked about and mentioned. And I can't wait to see that photo of all the women piled up on the oyster mountain. <laughs> thank you for inviting me on your podcast. Of course. And that is the conclusion of this episode on how Black folks created American oyster culture. I hope you really enjoyed that interview with Zella Palmer. She really made me hungry talking about the different ways to make oysters. Like I'm about to go order some oysters either today or like for lunch tomorrow. They're definitely on my list of things I need to eat and that I'm currently craving because that made me hungry. I hope you learned a lot on this episode. I really enjoyed doing the research and talking about it with y'all. I think as always, it's always hard to hear, especially as a Black person, how, you know, something like oyster harvesting was originally done in West Africa and it was brought over here through the transatlantic slave trade because slavery is awful. And 
on the other hand, I'm also like, okay, this speaks to our resilience and our ability to keep traditions alive that Black folks were able to bring that over, like despite the hardships, despite the inhumane ways of being treated and living a lot of my enslaved descendants here came and brought these traditions with them to make their lives easier, to impact and shape American culture, America cuisine, and really shape the way that this delicacy is seen and eaten to this day. Like that's just really mind blowing. And, you know, I'm also interested, I probably try to learn a little bit more about Thomas Downing because he was that man, you know what I'm saying? Like to think that he really created almost like the concept of fine dining because he really elevated oysters from like a dive bar situation to like an actual sit down situation. And then he also allowed women to come in because prior to that, only prostitutes could eat oysters in like the saloons and the little dive bars. So he really changed the game. And the most important part about what he did for me, well, not the most important part, but one of the most mind blowing parts is that his restaurant that was probably only frequented by white people, right? Prominent white people with money funded the Underground Railroad. So he had these white people eating his meals and they didn't realize he was using his profits to help free his people. And I think that is so beautiful. And so I'm always encouraged when I hear about, you know, abolitionists or free people or people who are able to buy their freedom or gain their freedom during slavery and how they used their fame or their profits to pay it forward and help their people, other enslaved folks, find freedom. Like, I just feel like that's like so powerful. And it's just so powerful to think that, you know, like a whole group of people, a whole group of men, well, a whole group of Black men really changed the seafood game and how we eat it today. And I'm very, very appreciative of that. And I'm very excited to eat oysters with that in my mind, knowing that knowledge and having that pride around it. So as usual, you know, follow us. That wasn't in my textbook all over the interwebs. If you haven't already, please leave a review. We've been getting some really good reviews online. I've been loving reading them. Um, Like I said, we're kicking off the summer session. So if you're excited about that, you can just leave a review about that. You could say, you know, I'm so excited about this summer session. Love the oyster episode. Not me feeding y'all answers. Y'all need me to talk for y'all, but you know what I'm saying? Just a sentence or two, five stars you know, drop a couple stars and a couple lines about your enjoyment of this new series. The next episode in our summer series is going to be on the history of surfing, which I'm really, really excited about. That's not this Friday, but the next Friday. Remember, we're bi-weekly, not weekly, not yet. And if you want to take a deeper dive into today's subject or learn more about today's guest, look in our show notes, or you can go to thatwasitinmytextbook.com. Thank you so much for supporting and reviewing. Y'all are the truth. I appreciate you. And until next time, remember, knowledge is power.